0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor.
1: I'm Jim Townsend.
0: Okay, Brussels Sprouts is back after our summer break and we're excited to kick off a new season. Uh, For our first episode, we're gonna address the current state of transatlantic coordination on China policy. Uh, this last July, the Munich Security Conference in cooperation with Mercator Institute for China Studies and the Aspen Strategy Group, released really what can be described as a landmark report called Mining the Gap, Priorities for Transatlantic China Policy, uh, which included contributions from both of our guests today. And in the report, experts from both sides of the Atlantic took stock of relations between the United States, Europe and China and proposed a transatlantic agenda that was focused on achieving quick wins across various issue areas. Um, the report itself covers really a broad spectrum of issues from competing for tech leadership to infrastructure, uh, sections on connectivity and international institutions and human rights. And today we're talking with Boris Ruga and Bonnie Glazer, who, as I said, both contributed sections and we are going to discuss how the United States and Europe um, can sustain a free and open in Indo-Pacific. So focusing in on the defense uh, piece of that. So welcome to you both. Uh, by quick way of background, um, Ambassador Boris Ruga is currently the vice chairman of the Munich Security Conference, a role which he held since, has held since August, 2019. He previously served as director for the Middle East and North Africa at the foreign office in Berlin, uh, as a German ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and as Deputy Ambassador to the United States. Uh, Bonnie Glaser is Director of the Asia Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. She was previously Senior Advisor for Asia and the Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's also a non-resident fellow with the Lowry Institute in Sydney, Australia and a Senior Associate with the Pacific Forum. All right, so a huge, issue to take on and something you know China policy in the transatlantic relationship has something that has really garnered a lot of attention in recent years. So I wonder as we often like to do to start with the very big picture and Boris maybe we can start with you just to do a little table setting and to talk about how you see and how you would characterize the state of transatlantic coordination on China at the current moment. I know in the report, it kind of starts out recognizing that the ground between the United States and Europe is converging, Um, but maybe just to hear a little bit from you about what that means and kind of where you think we are in this process.
2: Thanks a lot, Andrea. It's a a real pleasure to be um, part of this along with with Bonnie. Um, We spent basically six months working on this report um, with a group of 20 people. And, um, and that was a really good good experience and very instructive, at least, at least for me. Um, you could say that, that um, views on China have been, have been developing um, in a pretty significant way, both in the United States and Canada as well, uh, on the North American side, and also on the European side. Um, but the the speed um, has been quite different. So obviously with, with uh, President Trump coming into office, uh, China policy in the United States um, evolved significantly um, and in Europe it was slower, but I think you can take early 2019 as an important point where the EU institutions put out a paper saying Um, that China was simultaneously a partner, a competitor, and a systemic rival. Um, And that, in a sense, got a discussion started um, in Europe. So there's been evolution, but we are not in sync. And hence the the name of the report, Mind the Gap. Um, So there is a real gap between certainly the United States of America and EU and NATO nations in Europe. But I think there is significant convergence as well.
0: Bonnie, I don't know if you have anything you want to add. I mean, certainly China has been among the perhaps the most important foreign policy priority for the Biden administration. You know, there was a series of summits with the EU summit and other things where China was kind of front and center from the U.S. perspective. I mean, you know, do you think that there is that that the administration is happy with the way that things are progressing with the Europeans or kind of what does that picture look like from the U.S. side?
3: Well, President Biden's uh, trip to Europe, I think, was viewed as highly successful, beginning with the G7 meeting, and then uh, the NATO uh, meeting, and and finally, the uh, US-EU meeting. And all of those uh, summits uh, released uh, very strong statements on, on China. Uh, The NATO summit in particular um, had had very tough language on China compared to uh, previously. And it does really underscore what Boris was talking about that the US and Europe, um, although not completely aligned, um, the trends are in the same direction that there are issues that uh, both uh, Europe and the United States are increasingly concerned about. And they start with, I think, the very general commitment to a rules-based order, concern about China's increasingly assertive and aggressive behavior and efforts to undermine that uh, rules-based order. And, and particularly, I think there's, there's the closest alignment on the issues pertaining to human rights and values and. We have seen uh, Europe subsequently impose sanctions uh, on China, and the Chinese retaliate and impose sanctions on the EU, including um, individuals and think tanks, uh, and and as well as parliamentarians. And so, I think that uh, that has uh, the the interaction now between China and, and Europe has become more toxic. Um, and that I think has created more space uh, for the US and, and, and Europe to, to cooperate. Uh, so I think our sort of shared values are front and center. Um, there's going to be more cooperation on issues like uh, protecting supply chains, ensuring there is isn't forced labor and supply chains in places like, uh, like Xinjiang. But then there'll be areas like uh, you know, hard security uh, where we will continue to have uh, gaps in our perspectives as well as our capabilities um, uh, to actually implement any kind of you know, shared
1: policies. Thank you, Bonnie. I mean, that's, that's very interesting and along the lines that I've seen as well. And Boris, thanks for your intervention too. I, I have a question that's really NATO focused. And Boris, I think this is probably more for you. Tell me what you really, what you're hearing in the corridors uh, when you go to NATO about where NATO allies really are around the table. And I say that because when I read the communique after the summit, um, China, I mean, I'm an old communique negotiator. I know, <laughs> I know placement of paragraphs are very important. And China was like Paris 61. There was a lot on Russia. There was a paragraph on China that I felt was, you know, you could tell there was a lot of bodies buried in that, that in that paragraph. Um, and so, on the one hand, it was a great victory to have at least something in the communiqué on China, given where the alliance has been in the past. But on the other hand, you had uh, the French were walking back a little bit from interpreting the over-interpreting that. Uh, and I've heard that still, it's it's tough to have a discussion around the table um, uh, at NATO that is too deep into this stuff. So really where in terms of the alliance do you think we are in terms of allies following a, a harder edged U.S. approach?
2: Right. So, Jim, I think you have to go back to, to December of 2019 to the um, leaders, NATO leaders meeting in London. Um, and that was the very first time, as I understand it, that China was explicitly included in a NATO communique. So, you know, that's, that's only um, a year and a half ago. Um, fast forward to the June summit, and China gets, I think, mentioned 10 times in the communique, um, and there's very strong language. So I think that's a very significant development. And as you know, of course, um, this is sort of the starting point for the work on NATO's new strategic concept. So the proof of the pudding will be um, how China is dealt with in the strategic concept. After the summit, people people, um, made made a lot of of Emmanuel Macron's comments um, on NATO and China um, and interpreted it in a fairly negative way. But actually, um, uh, Macron said something that that Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, had said previously, which was that NATO will remain focused on the Euro-Atlantic area, which I think is a statement of fact. Um, So, in a sense, I think people who are are reading that as the French are walking back from this communique, they're undermining what has been discussed on China, I think that's exaggerated. I think we're at the beginning of a process where NATO comes to terms with China, and that's not a one-off communique negotiation. It's something probably that's going to take not just the strategic concept, but years of work and reflection and also building up expertise you know China expertise at nato i imagine is not very deep um so we're at the starting point really
1: so what do you think the broad outline could be i mean i don't want to have you ca- uh put your eyes on a crystal ball too deeply no one likes to do that but if you had to look out ahead at the strategic concept or in the even past that um, and also the Compass document that the EU is going to be putting together. We'll see what China, you know, they're going to kind of come together next year. If you had to look in terms of NATO and what the what the structure might be for kind of a NATO approach to the Indo-Pacific, you know, there's a lot of ideas out there. there a committee on the Indo-Pacific, uh, a NATO ship or two participating in RIMPAC, or you know that kind of thing. Um, what do you think the market will bear? What's going to be kind of the the high watermark uh, of of NATO and China. Uh, Just just some speculation here.
2: (laughs) So so you're right, there's on the EU side, you have several documents as well. Um, You have the strategic compass, but you also have presumably in September or sometime in the fall, um, um, an EU Indo-Pacific strategy that has been decided that presumably has been worked on. Um, And interestingly, the EU, sort of uh, Council conclusions um, that were adopted, I think, in April, if I remember correctly, contained by EU standards a lot of language about a maritime presence in the Indo-Pacific, security cooperation across several areas, including cyber, whatnot. So pretty interesting. But on the NATO side, um, sort of one way of looking at it is Um, NATO has to um, think about the Indo-Pacific and the relevance of the Indo-Pacific to uh, the security of NATO nations. Um, NATO also has to think about um, China's presence outside of the Indo-Pacific, e.g. in the Arctic um, or in the Mediterranean, or um, Chinese cooperation with Russia, right? There's been a a lot of observations about China and Russia engaging in joint exercises and taking that to a new level um, that's not my expertise, but it's certainly something people are keeping an eye on. And then there's the whole the whole area of, um, I guess, what NATO calls EDT emerging and disruptive technologies, right? So, to the extent that that um, people that you think that is important, then obviously you want to keep an eye on China on Chinese advances in artificial intelligence and applications, um, and you want to coordinate to the extent that NATO can do that um, on. Um, export controls, on um, investment screening, a lot of that will be done on a national basis, a lot of that will be done um, on an EU basis, but there's certainly a role for NATO, and this was highlighted in the NATO 2030 process as a very important area, and it has relevance on China.
0: So I, I definitely want to come back to the kind of what is Europe's role in the Indo-Pacific, but be, before we do that, Bonnie, So Jim asked, you know, about how US efforts to increase the priority that China receives in NATO, how that's being received by uh, EU and NATO member states. I want to ask you kind of the flip side of that question, which is, as the ground converges between the United States and Europe, how is that being perceived in Beijing? And I did kind of, you know, as Boris was talking about the joint exercises between Russia and China, I think I had seen somewhere about the Zapad 2021 exercises that the PLA might actually skip those exercises. And some analysts speculated that it may be because they wanted to kind of avoid uh, fueling any NATO concerns about China, you know, among NATO member states. So is, is this something that Beijing is increasingly attuned to? Are, they, is, are there concerns about more alignment between the United States and Europe? Or what, you know, what does that look like? What's the assessment in, in Beijing?
3: Well, I also saw that speculation that China had pulled out of that particular exercise because it might not want to uh, increase NATO attention to uh, China. But frankly, if you look at China's behavior around the world, uh, I can't really find any place where China is being restrained because it is worried about uh, offending other countries. Chinese confidence is high. Uh, It sees the United States as in decline. It wants to take advantage of this particular moment where it sees the balance of forces, if you will, moving in China's favor. Uh, so, uh, in regards to its overall relationship with Europe, I don't think we see the Chinese holding back because if that were true, then the Chinese wouldn't have imposed sanctions. They would have uh, tried to convince Europe to go ahead and sign the investment treaty. Uh, but they that wasn't important enough uh, for for China. They wanted to send a very strong signal about uh, other countries damaging Chinese interests. And this is in part because uh, the domestic situation in in China is relevant here. Xi Jinping is going to uh, take over uh, probably, as he will enter his third term uh, next year, in, uh, uh, in the fall of 2022, and he doesn't want to have any um, uh, situation that he faces in the coming year that might weaken him or make him vulnerable uh, to criticism. Uh, so he is very focused on strengthening the role of the party, the image of China, protecting Chinese interests, um, especially especially sovereignty. Um, so when it comes to issues like Xinjiang or Taiwan or Hong Kong, um, uh, the, the Chinese are, are really dug in. And uh, the social media that we have seen uh, for your diplomacy, uh, the, the Chinese have just not, not been restrained in any way. So I think that the Chinese uh, view uh, Europe as still potentially having sufficient differences from the United States that they can continue a strategy of trying to drive a wedge between the two. Uh, They do not want to see US and and, and Europe very closely aligned against China. I think China's biggest fear is actually the forging of an anti-China um, alliance um, and and they believe that uh, that that's very unlikely even the quad uh Japan Australia India and the, and the United states which has been developing um in a in a way that I think china's not happy about but even there, um, nobody's even talking about creating a secretariat or permanent institutions. Nobody's using the the word uh, alliance. So I, I think that the Chinese are still relatively confident that they can keep the United States and its allies separate to the to some extent so that they can protect Chinese interests and uh, promote uh, the, you know the national rejuvenation agenda that Xi Jinping has articulated. Um, so clearly and forcefully.
0: One more question before we come back to the, okay, so what is the United States and Europe's role in the defense sector? You know, so Bonnie just laid out this kind of idea or this um, notion that China still feels fairly confident that they can keep the United States and Europe separate. One big event that feels like it will have some significance over Europe's trajectory and where it sits on China is the German election. Um, and so, Boris, I wonder if you can just kind of talk about how you see that election and whether or not it will lead to any significant change coming out of Berlin, or if you think it'll be a bit more of the status quo uh, once a coalition is formed uh, in Berlin. So, yeah, just how, how, do, how is that election going to matter uh, in, in this trajectory?
2: I think the the German elections are gonna matter on German foreign policy in general, but um, also specifically um, German foreign policy towards um, China. I think elections matter and I think persons matter and um, who is chancellor matters. Um, Angela Merkel has been chancellor for 16 years um, and she has paid a lot of attention to China. She's traveled very often. Um, She's met with um, uh, successive leaders um, in Beijing, um, and there has been a German policy of engaging with China, um, perhaps similar to that of many other Western nations. Um, that was based on, uh, you know, a certain level of optimism about how China would develop. But that optimism has, um, I wouldn't say, evaporated. Uh, but I would say that, that whether in the business community or um, among Uh, the political class in berlin uh, the view on china is much more skeptical today and i think we have um, started to move in a new direction that is more in line with um, us views on china Um, but i think that that election whoever becomes chancellor whatever the coalition is i think at the end of the day there will be a somewhat more um, critical line towards China. Um, if you take um, as a data point the debate we had on um, 5G, um, the 5G network and Huawei, the, 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 the sort of the uh, disagreement was between the Chancellor's Office and the Ministry of Economic Affairs on the one hand wanting to be more generous if that's the right adjective and the, um, uh, the ministries and agencies uh, with an investment in security issues, on the other hand, that were sort of pushing for a tougher line, um, sort of, um, um, you know, more about keeping Huawei out of the 5G network. Um, so I think, I think there will be a debate. Yesterday, there was a big article in, in one of the, the Sunday papers, featuring Annalena Baerbock, uh, the Green uh, candidate for chancellor and the the headline was, we must not put ourselves at the mercy of Beijing, something like that, okay? And and you will find the same sentiment across parties. So it's it's a debate that is really going on, um, certainly in the Conservative Party, the Liberal Party, Social Democratic Party. The Greens have been quite consistent for a number of years now. In calling out China um, on its behavior, um, so that's been more consistent. But overall, the debate is leading us, I think, towards a, a tougher line towards China.
1: Uh, Bonnie, if I could ask you a question, I, uh, 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 Andrea, and I have been working on a, and we're still working on a piece about the Mediterranean uh, and Russia-China cooperation in the Med. And as I was doing research and looking at that, I was. I was taken aback a bit about how far the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative had, had gone into Europe. And I say that because it's, it's you know, a lot of people point to Piraeus or they'll point to 5G, and that, that's kind of used to illustrate China in Europe. But as I looked at what was happening uh, recently, uh, railroads and um, as well as uh, ports, not just in Greece, but uh, all over the, you know, the the continent in terms of Germany, Netherlands, Turkey, and Turkish involvement um, with China, uh, particularly on the financial side, it's much deeper than, and widespread than I than I thought. And so, as you look at China, uh, are you are you seeing an an a, a, a an acceleration or an increase in Chinese involvement economically, financially in Europe? Are you seeing a trend line that's actually going up, or, or what does it look like to you as China starts getting headwinds out of Europe, uh, whether it's 5G or, or statements that we just heard from uh, from Boris that the Green Party was saying, are those headwinds, in fact, slowing down? It's not really accelerating, that a lot of what I was just talking about was from years past, and it's, it's slowing down. What's your, what's your feel about the velocity of Chinese investment in Europe?
0: And Lithuania pulling out of the Belt and Road Initiative, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah lots of headwinds.
1: And Croatia, isn't it Croatia, uh, that has these loans uh, with China as well, and they're now desperate for help to try to, like that, I
0: think.
1: Yeah. yeah, so so what's, what's your what's your take on the acceleration of Chinese engagement in the European economy? Well, it might be difficult
3: at this particular moment to measure because of uh, COVID-19. The pandemic has affected uh, China's Belt and Road projects in many countries uh, around the world. And in some places, we've seen a pullback. Um, Other places, uh, like in the developing world, where we've seen renegotiation of loans. Uh, But this is uh, a a project that the Chinese are constantly fine-tuning um, and Europe remains a uh, a, a priority. Uh, there are some countries that I think are more sort of success stories than than others uh, for China. Uh, the trend in the Baltics, as Andrea just mentioned, is is, is not a positive one, um, where Lithuania has pulled out of uh, the 17 plus one initiative. That Xi Jinping created, and as I understand it, Estonia uh, may be on the cusp of, of uh, withdrawing as well. Uh, so uh, the, the the Chinese, I think, envision this as uh, a way to enhance connectivity between Europe and China, and in some ways that is continuing, but railway can only carry so so many goods so much freight it's still so much cheaper uh, to ship uh, over over the over the ocean uh so i think that there is that there's limits here i mean the, the 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 challenge though is that uh china from the beginning the inception of the belt and road has seen its economic tools as a means of of, of pulling countries toward China it's this this magnet uh, effect of getting countries to be more dependent on, on on China and that you know has had mixed effects uh, where some countries have pushed back. Uh, against the fact that China is seeking to make that country more more dependent on on China. Um, In other places, it has caused countries to be more muted in their criticism of Chinese behavior, um, and and that's a win uh, for China. So I personally see this as still playing out. I think Europe's very important uh, to, to China. They continue, as I said, to try to sort of pull European countries away from the United States. Uh, but they also know that there are many countries that are becoming more alarmed and and if you look at pew uh, public opinion polls you will see the negativity towards china has right. grown in every single country in europe and, and and that's not lost on the chinese yeah
0: so kind of pivoting to the what what we do about it or what you know, in the defense realm in in particular. I mean, it it strikes me that, you know, in certain uh, domains, whether it's infrastructure or investment screening or export controls, people generally see the benefits of more coordination, cooperation between the United States and Europe on those things. But in the defense realm, it still feels like there are there's more debate and a lot more questions about what Europe's role should be um, and how much, you know, what, what does cooperation between the United States and Europe uh, in the defense realm vis-a-vis China look like? And so you know I want to pick your brain on that and I guess kind of the context to that too is it seems to me that there are several european member states whether it's the baltics or poles or other eastern europeans who are actually quite concerned that the united states may be underestimating and looking past russia that 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 they're seeing maybe um a mismatch in prioritization. The United States has been, the Biden administration in particular, has been so eager to push China to put it at the top of the foreign policy list, to raise the priority of China within the NATO context. And there's, I, my sense is, and I hear from kind of European interlocutors concern that we're overlooking or underestimating Russia. And so, you know, I guess, Boris, maybe to start with you, how, how much focus should Europe be placing on China in the defense realm? How much of a priority should it should it actually be? And how do we get that balance between having to take on the Russia challenge, this very persistent challenge with with the, with the China piece of it as well? How do you think about striking that, that right balance?
2: Right. So I think that the, you know, the right way to look at it is, is um, uh, through recognizing, as, as Bonnie noted, um, that there's a significant asymmetry between Europeans and Americans in terms of their exposure in the Indo-Pacific. So the US and Canada, are Pacific nations, Um, and the US has um, very significant assets in the region, and it has um, several uh, very significant defense commitments, um, including Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, um, uh, Australia, I imagine. I think Australia is is an ally in that sense as well. And then there's the special case of Taiwan. Um, So Europe, by contrast, is, is sort of has fewer assets, fewer capabilities, but also fewer commitments. You can say that the UK and France have territories, they have um, citizens in the region as well, something in the order of 1.6 million French passport holders in the region, that's that's significant, but, but there's not a whole lot in terms of military capability to back that up. Now, we know that there's um, a UK carrier group in the region currently, um, you know that's that's important. We know that the French have been there. There's a German frigate that is on the way to the region. But in military terms, it doesn't really amount to a whole lot. And the question is, if you found yourself in a crisis scenario or even a conflict scenario with with China, would those military assets matter a great deal? And the answer is maybe not, certainly not on the German side. The German navy. Um, you know, is, is perhaps equipped to deal with, with contingencies in the Baltic and in the North Sea and the Atlantic, but, but we simply don't have the, the kind of capabilities that, that would matter, that would make a difference in the, in the Indo-Pacific. So um, the short answer is most of what we can do to help with um, security in the Indo-Pacific is to work for a rules-based order, international law, including freedom of navigation intensifying relationships on a bilateral basis with countries in the region, working through NATO to build relationships. In the report, we say that NATO should consider creating an actual council with its Asia-Pacific partners, who are, I think, uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, um, and someone else. Uh, I think there's four of them. So turn that into a council reach out to India, sort of intensify the relationship with India um, from a NATO um, sort of uh, position. Those are the things that we can do. And then critically, um, if the US finds itself in a crisis scenario in the Indo-Pacific, are European allies um, ready to take on the burden in Europe and in adjacent areas. So if U.S. capabilities need to be moved to the Indo-Pacific, can we backfill U.S. forces? That's critical. And that's where we have our work cut out.
1: If, if, if I can follow up with that, and I, there's two questions, one for Bonnie and, and Boris, just based on what you said, I have one for you too. But Bonnie, you know, uh, Boris mentioned the uh, some of the allied ships that are going to the Pacific now, just to make the point kind of the show the flag, a little bit of 21st century gumbo diplomacy, if you will. The Brits, particularly with the great fanfare, have made this uh, great white fleet style um, trip across, um, you know, from Europe into the the Pacific. Um, And what I hear every now and then, I'll see something out of Beijing or commentary where the Chinese seem to be, um, you know, pissy about it, but they're not overly... The, you know the, the they, they they get the signal they get the message and they're like they're kind of flicking away a, a mosquito in a, in a sense you kind of get that feel from what they're saying you know they're you know they're they're mocking it a little bit or are they i mean when, how does Beijing look at the German frigate that German frigates don't pop up in the Pacific very often and here Germany is sending one of its best frigates so, uh, it's set off already with great fanfare too um, and, of course, the French operate out there because of their holdings, and then we have just talked about the Brits. How, do, how does Beijing really look on that? Certainly, it's not a military threat to them, but, but that must be something that frustrates them a little bit, or does it worry them at all? Is it a mosquito, or is it something more than that?
3: Well, Jim, it's definitely just not a mosquito. Uh, of course, the Chinese will uh, downplay it in their in their media. They want to reassure their own public that there really isn't a, a threat coming from uh, other other countries aligning with the United States. But as I said earlier, I think that the Chinese are deeply concerned about the trends of coalition building. So let's remember that the Trump administration, um, uh, undermined uh, U.S. alliances, and this was a gift uh, for, for China in, in so many respects. Uh, that one of the great assets that the United States has is our allies and our relationships around the world that China, of course, just cannot even think about matching, and the Trump administration um, caused many of our allies to distance themselves from the United States. Uh, so. This was, I, I I think, a period where uh, China just didn't have to didn't have to worry about it during the Trump administration. I don't think they expected the Biden administration would be able to turn things around so quickly. And while I agree, of course, with your characterization and Boris's characterization that essentially these uh, military operations, you know, by the Queen Elizabeth and by the German frigate, um, are mostly uh, symbolic. What they do is they signal that Europe has a vested interest in peace and stability, in freedom of navigation, in preventing the use of force uh, by China to settle territorial disputes, in uh, opposing the use of coercion against smaller countries, including in the South China Sea, where these countries want to access their resources, including not only fish, but also energy. And so these cruises of uh, freedom of navigation, even though they're not FANOPs as you would define them narrowly, nevertheless remain important. Um, And and let's at least recall that the UK did conduct one FANOP in the Paracels several years ago. We don't rule out that they could uh, do more in in the future. Uh, And and so there's not just the rhetoric as we see in the statements the transatlantic statements we talked about earlier, but also some of these actions that are being taken uh, by Europe, and 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 I think that the Chinese uh, don't like the trend. I don't think that they believe that this is going to lead to a really European military involvement in a crisis, but it certainly could lead to greater signals in peacetime and then potential uh, thinking through contingencies where Europe's uh, interest could be negatively affected. So if there is, for example, a Chinese blockade around Taiwan, Europe would be affected. And this is something that the United States wants Europe to think through. What are the kinds of, of steps that could be taken in the event of, of a contingency?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that was great, Bonnie. Yeah, thank you. That I thought that was very good. Uh, Boris, here's the here's that follow-up for you based on what you just said. You know, there, it's been being debated among a small circle of NATO Beto, nicks uh, and defense planners thinking about, and I don't like using this term, but I haven't been able to come up with anything better, kind of a division of labor. And I don't mean a hard division of labor. I don't mean something that's going to undermine U.S. presence in Europe, but there's a feeling that the US is gonna have to be able to focus more on the Indo-Pacific um, and doing so, it's going to impact our, you know, it, it, because we're, we're thin, uh, unfortunately, the Navy, it's gonna impact somewhat our ability to focus as well on Russia with the kind of, of intensity that we're used to doing. So so do you think there's any, uh, you know, what what do you think the market is in the alliance now for us uh, to work with defense planners in the next couple of years to begin to say, look, Europe is going to have to do more to handle the deterrence of Russia, um, to allow the U.S. to focus more intensely on Indo-Pacific, not that we would pull forces out of Europe, you know, the old pivot, for God's sake, uh, not that we pull forces, not that we, but, but, but there's got to be a contingency uh, recognized by Europe that there could come a time when we're going to have to have Europe you know, flow into the breach, uh, whereas the U.S. might be tied up, because it could be you'll have some coordination between China and Russia. I mean, you know, it depends on the scenario. So what do you think about that? Or do you think uh, particularly the Central European allies are recoil and go, oh, my God, is the U.S. leaving Europe? This is terrible, you know? uh, So how would that play, do you think, around the alliance table?
2: I think I think it's recognized that that um, America's focus increasingly is on the Indo-Pacific, and that scarce resources, military capabilities, top-level political attention, these kinds of things um, are, you know, uh, you know that that the U.S. is stressed in that to some extent. Um, so that that's understood. Have we drawn drawn the, the, the necessary conclusions from that? No, I think that the strategic concept exercise um, should look precisely into those things and be the starting point. I would say that the Biden administration, and, and Bonnie has touched on this, um, has reassured European allies and patched up the transatlantic relationship in a very significant way. Um, that rather than drawing down U.S. troops in Germany, for example, the Biden administration has reinforced America's uh, posture um, in Germany by several hundred troops. So, but I think it's it's basically that balance, right? The U.S. Has, has sort of has highlighted that it is committed to European security, but I think everyone knows that in a crisis scenario, which we cannot exclude in the Indo-Pacific, Um, that will have ramifications for European security. So in a sense, as we point out in the report, the most direct impact of China as a security actor can be via a crisis or in the worst case, a conflict in the Indo-Pacific with implications for the US posture in Europe Um, And and we should take measures to address that. And and here we get back to the old burden-sharing debate and the 2% issue, which is also a live issue in the German campaign. Um, And I think we have to to be clear that more will be expected from us in terms of uh, being the backbone for Europe's conventional um, defense. If I can add just one word, um, Bonnie touched on Taiwan, and I think that was a very important element of our conversation. And I think um, discussing um, the status quo and discussing scenarios involving Taiwan, um, that was important. And I think it's, it's part of, of recognition that, is, is, um, that has occurred in Europe, that um, uh, you know, we have to keep an eye on Taiwan, and Taiwan is a test case. And of course, this is also on the background of Beijing's policies towards Hong Kong um, and its willingness to throw to throw um, you know, international law out of the window and change the status of Hong Kong uh, to its advantage. Um, and I think people realize now for a number of reasons, uh, strategic as well as technological, um, and, and sort of broader reasons of, of values and human rights, that the future of Taiwan really is, is very significant and something that we should take an interest in.
0: Thanks, Boris, that's also really helpful. I mean, that's definitely one of the debates you hear a lot of whether it's kind of a divide and conquer or not. And I know that's something that's still actively being debated, but we're running a little um, short on time. And so I recognize that all throughout our conversation, we've had some recommendations peppered through, You know, we talked about Boris, you talked about the council, we've talked about the ways that Europe can send signals with European vessels in the Indo-Pacific but it maybe bears worth repeating a little bit here at the end and bonnie maybe we can start with you you know from and from the u.s perspective what are some of the things that you think um europe can do that would have the most significant impact on addressing challenges from china in the defense and military realm
3: well i would really start with uh technology Um, and it's it's not just defense technology but of course many technologies that could end up bleeding into defense capabilities. And the Biden administration is, I think, very seized with this issue, building on uh, the Trump administration, adding entities uh, to the list of companies that U.S. uh, should not be selling advanced uh, technologies to. Um, So we see this, again, in sort of supply chains that relate to human rights, but then separately um, supply chains that could end up leading to uh, enhancing defense capabilities in, in 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 China, so I think we need to work together on uh, on uh, export controls, and uh, if if the United States does this alone, it 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 will be pointless. So I think I think that's that's an area that really should be uh, very high uh, on, on our priorities. And then, uh, secondly, as I mentioned, I do think more contingency planning, uh, figuring out if the United States ends up in a conflict in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific, how does Europe in, step up? And as Boris said, backfill some of, uh, U.S. forces and take on the, the missions of, of, of U.S. forces. And, and it, that may also involve areas that are, that are outside Europe, but, uh, I, I think that's a conversation that we should have. I think Taiwan would be uh, would be um, also included in that. And lastly, if I could just maybe point out um, uh, briefly a couple of the signposts to be looking at uh, over the course of the coming months uh, that I think are going to be really important in this conversation. One is that the Biden administration is just about completed. It's Indo-Pacific strategy report. Um, and, and that is going to be very important, where it will lay out uh, their priorities and the priorities and, and the strategy of, 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 of the U.S. in, in the region. Um, and there may be a role for Europe that is mentioned in it. Of course, the EU is coming out with its own strategy paper in September, and I think that that will be very important, um, That focusing on, on the Indo-Pacific. And uh, related to that, uh, in, in, in terms of uh, U.S. Uh, defense planning, um, at some point, we will see, I don't know, maybe maybe you know when, when the Global Force Posture Review is supposed to be finished um, and rolled out, but then, of course, we're going to see the national defense strategy, uh, we're going to see the, um, uh, the, uh, m- the nuclear posture review, and we have not mentioned uh, the recent finding of at least three fields of new missile silos in China. And the conversation between you, the US um, and, and Europe and, uh, and in the context of NATO, of course, as well, about China's evolving nuclear capabilities will be very important.
0: Boris, anything you want to add to Bonnie's list there? That was comprehensive, but anything oh, that to was,
2: add. That was very good. So, so we have these documents on the sort of NATO, U.S. side, us side coming up that's an opportunity to to think through these things and come up with with good ideas um i think it's it's important also to stress the need for for dialogue with china and that was that was very significant and in the chapter on on security in the indo-pacific we also had this point on engaging china on global security issues that you know that that goes to the the point of strategic nuclear weapons and there was there was language in the NATO communiqué um, calling on Beijing to engage meaningfully in dialogue, confidence building, and transparency measures regarding its nuclear capabilities and doctrine. Right, Th- that kind of thing is important as well. Um, I I think that that working with partners in the Indo-Pacific, whether it's the EU or NATO, is important. And and of course, the Asia-Pacific partners of NATO, um, as are currently recognized are Japan, Republic of Korea, um, Australia, New Zealand, those four. So develop the relationship with those, that's important. And and finally, to go back to to a point Jim made, what about this German frigate, is it just a mosquito? Um, Interestingly, um, as as you probably know, um, there was a question to the Chinese whether um, it would be possible to make a port call in Shanghai. And the Chinese Chinese response to that was, we don't really know what you guys are up to. So first, explain to us what you're doing in the region, and then we may consider. Now, um, if the Chinese tell us that that this German frigate is not welcome in Shanghai, it strikes me as a bit of an own goal, right? Um, but I think diplomatically, it's it's not it's actually not not a bad bad way of um, of approaching this. So get the balance right between. Between signaling what our interests are in the region, but also maintain this this level of dialogue with China, and that's important. And and again, Taiwan extremely important, extreme sort of increasingly recognized in Europe as being important. So signaling that that for us is is very important. I think that's an that's an element of perhaps hope conflict prevention, I would say so telling telling Beijing that changing the status of Taiwan by force is simply unacceptable that's absolutely crucial, I think, and I think that will increasingly become um, a speaking point that that Europeans deliver.
0: Yeah, Jim, I don't know if there's anything you want to add at the end here, but that is, you know, between, you know, with you, Bonnie and Boris, that is just an excellent list of recommendations for ways that the United States and Europe can work together on this challenge. Boris, I also really love your point about increasing the coordination between the Indo-Pacific and European allies, you know, even on non-conventional threats, whether it's disinformation, attacks on democracy, there's a lot of room for sharing of best practices between between those countries, and I think I think that the some of the Indo-Pacific allies will be present at the NATO summit next year. Is that right? Also, so a lot of a lot of the things you know, there's there's really progress, real progress on a lot of the issues um, that you both have highlighted, um, but obviously, a ways to go at the same time. So um, I'm going to wrap up by saying thank you, but also putting in one more plug. I mean, this, this issue of transatlantic cooperation on China is such an important one. The report that you all contributed to was fantastic. Um, and we are actually gonna do one more episode dedicated to that report, digging more in on the kind of economic and technology components of that. So for Brussels sprouts listeners who are interested in this, you know, stay tuned for another conversation with, you know, talking about how we can level the economic playing field, increase economic security, compete technologically. So that is coming. Um, Jim, to you.
1: Thank you. I I agree with all of that. And I just wanted to put stomp what uh, surprisingly we didn't really talk about until Bonnie raised it. And that's that strategic nuclear uh, growth, I guess, that we're seeing with China. That is something that we have to get on top of very quickly. We can't wait until the silos are done and the missiles are in or whatever it might be uh, to have a problem with it. And um, and it's interesting that we didn't even talk about it until Bonnie raised it. So as we look at uh, doing things ahead um, and we focus on 5G and this type of thing, we've got to really focus on that strategic nuclear uh, component and figure out how to bring the Chinese into the discussion. Because make no mistake that's gonna be hard to do. They're not gonna sit there and go, oh, you're right, this is destabilizing. We'll just fill those holes in. You know, That's just not gonna happen. So what leverage do we really have? And so this is something we've got to really begin to pay attention to. So Bonnie, thanks for raising that.
0: Wonderful. Okay, so just a quick thank you to both of you. I'm looking forward to continuing to follow your work on this. Um, and again, thanks for taking the time to join us and hopefully we'll get to do it again soon.